Turn to Matthew 20, please. We're looking at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through to 16, the parable of the vineyard workers. Just to remind you, a parable is an earthly story that gives very important instruction about deep spiritual truth, the kingdom of heaven. Looking first at the straightforward earthly meaning of the parable that we read earlier, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through to 16. It is written in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out in the uh, went out early in the morning to hire labourers into his vineyard. Therefore, early in the morning, a landowner went out to employ people to work in his vineyard. And that reminds me of when I lived in India and I worked at a, an international school in India. And the uh, manager of all the building projects at the school, he used to go out early in the morning to the marketplace to employ casual labour to work on the building projects at the school people would congregate at the marketplace hoping to get work for the day. So what happened in this parable is something that still happens, or at least it does in India. In verse 2, And when he had agreed with the labourers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the vineyard owner, he agreed to pay that first group of workers a penny or a denarius, whatever you've got in your translation of the Bible. Uh, suffice to say that it was apparently the going rate for a day's work, that money. It was what, that, what they were paid was the going rate at the time. Three more groups of labourers were hired at three hourly intervals during the course of the day and the householder said to them, whatsoever is right, I will give you. Unlike the first group of workers, it would seem that the others didn't enter into into, into, uh, negotiations about remuneration. They simply went off to work without questioning their new boss and they trusted him Uh, that he would give them the right amount for the work. So they were trusting in him. Finally, 11 hours after the first labourers were hired and just one hour before the end of the working day, one last group of workers were employed by the householder. Uh, Next time you use the expression at the 11th hour, meaning at the last possible moment. I don't know if you've used that term before, the 11th hour. That's, it means the last possible moment. You'll know where it came from, Matthew chapter 20. At the end of the day, the householder instructed his steward or manager to pay the labourers, starting with the ones who had worked just one hour and ending with the group that had worked a full 12-hour shift. All were paid a penny, And that did not go down well with the ones who worked the longest. Just look at verses 10 and 12. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house. 
saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and now has made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. Before we go any further, let's be honest about this. Would you have felt cheated as well if you had been working all day long? Uh, not just working all day long, but working through the, the, the midday heat as well. Let's remember where that was in the Middle East. It would have been boiling hot. They would have been working hard in that vineyard, grafting away, harvesting grapes, whilst others who barely worked long enough to work up a sweat or get their hands dirty got the same amount of money. Doesn't seem fair, does it, somehow? Even though that first group of workers had made an agreement with their boss to be paid a penny or a denarius, still, human nature is such, it's not right. You can almost hear them screaming and protesting how unfair it all was. And perhaps you may have, would, you would have been the same had you been there. For, that's human nature. Even when you have agreed a reward for your labour, you nevertheless feel cheated if others get the same for doing less. Looking at verses 13 through to 15. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? The householder, he answered one of the mourners, but you, you know, you can be sure that he was speaking to all of them there. What he said to one, he said to all of them, and he said very clearly there, friend, I do thee no wrong. In those words, the householder told the mourners that they were envious. Why were they envious? Because of his generosity to the other workers. That's it. They were ang- they were envious, they were angry because he'd shown generosity, kindness to other workers. And finally, the parable ends in verse 16 with the word, So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few are chosen. Well... So much for that. Now for the heavenly meaning of the parable of the vineyard workers. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 12 and verse 10, it is written, Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard, they have trodden my portion underfoot, they have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. The people of God are described as a vineyard in Jeremiah. And then we come to the New Testament, to John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So with all that in mind, the vineyard in this parable can be seen to be the church. And that makes sense when you consider that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven.
We see that in verse 1. The various people who were employed to work in the vineyard can be seen to represent pastors who are called by God to feed the sheep with the word of God or in the language of this parable to prune the branches. How would they prune the branches? By proclaiming the word of God. Sadly, there are pastors who are like the first group of workers in the parable. Instead of simply trusting the Lord to meet their material needs, they are overly concerned with how much they will be paid. And the reality is that more than a few pastors are driven by or even obsessed with financial gain. Also, as in any other calling, there are pastors who work much harder, much longer hours than others, but they don't necessarily get more money than the others. Consequently, they murmur and they complain. Whilst all of that is true, I'm not convinced that that is what this parable is all about. Then there is the view of others who look at the last verse of the parable, verse 16, where it is written, So the last shall be first, and the first last. And they say, Now the only way for the last to be first, and the first to be last, would be if they all finished or, or, or they all cross the finish line in a dead heat. Makes sense, doesn't it? That way, the first to last, the last to first, if they cross over the line at the same time. Therefore, whether you cross the finish line and go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ after half a century of devoted Christian service, or after just a few minutes of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in your dying moments even, like the thief on the cross. It is a dead heat with regards what you receive through faith in Christ. Either way, you receive not just some, but you receive all blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, doesn't matter how or how much you've done. At the end of the day, we all receive all spiritual blessings in Christ. Again, that's all true, but I still don't think that that is the lesson, the lesson to be learned in this particular parable. So, what is the parable all about? A good start would be to look at the first verse again. Look, look how that first verse starts. I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but um, look at verse 1 there. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder. What's that word for telling us to do? It's telling us to look above, isn't it? So we look above. and um, we, we skip over chapter 20, the words chapter 20, and we look at the last verse in chapter 19. Verse 30 there. But... Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It starts with but. So the first verse in chapter 20 starts with four, which makes us look up. 
Then the first word in verse 30 of chapter 19 starts with but. What does that do? It makes us look up again, doesn't it? Now, we don't have time to keep looking up and to um, end up in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, do we? But it's probably a good idea to look at some of chapter 19 in order to understand the parable in chapter 20. And looking at chapter 19, it's it's a fairly sizable chunk here, but I want to read to you verses 17 through to 30. I'm sure it will be familiar to most, if not all of you. Verse 17 through to 30 in chapter 19. And he said unto him, why... Hold on, let's take it from verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honour thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. At which point, that rich young ruler should have got down on his knees or on his belly and cried out, what must I do to be saved? But he didn't. He didn't do that, did he? What did he do? The young man, verse 20, the young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give it a gift to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, They were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? By the way, I don't think Peter was boasting there. He didn't get a rebuke or anything from Jesus. He was saying it as it is. Him and the others, they'd forsaken all to follow Jesus. Verse 28, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many 
that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. That passage that I read there ends the same way that our parable ends, doesn't it? I trust you've noticed that. Verses 30 and of chapter 19, verse 16 of chapter 20 are more or less the same. You can see that like most people, the rich young ruler was self-righteous. He actually imagined that he loved his neighbour as himself. There's no one in the world who loves his neighbour as himself. There really isn't. He imagined that he could do something to inherit eternal life. What good thing might I do? He said. Note that he did not say, what must I do to be saved? The answer to that question is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Instead, he said, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That is the mentality of most people in the world. What must I do to uh, have eternal life? As far as he was concerned, he was an upright citizen and a man of importance in the eyes of the world. Someone who could do something good to inherit eternal life. But the Lord Jesus Christ laid bare his sin. What was it he laid bare? That the man was covetous. That earthly riches meant more to him than heavenly treasures. He walked away sorrowful when Jesus said, sell everything you've got and distribute the proceeds to the poor. Couldn't possibly do that. He had no conviction of sin. There was no evidence of repentance. He didn't seem to get it that like the rest of us, he was a sinner. And without faith in Jesus, he could do absolutely nothing to please God. What good thing must I do? We can do nothing apart from Christ. Nothing at all. He was not seeking God's grace or undeserved favour towards him. Like the first group of vineyard workers, this is where I'm going to try and make the connections, like the first group of vineyard workers in the parable who were not prepared to trust the householder to give what was right, He was trying to negotiate his work contract with Jesus in order to obtain eternal life. There are many professing Christians who are like the rich young ruler and they are like the first group of vineyard workers in the parable in that they have never shown repentance towards God and they are not trusting in God to give them out of the riches of his grace in this lifetime and forevermore. Furthermore, they resent others whom they perceive to have who to have done little or nothing in the life of the church as they see it, receiving the same temporal blessings that they receive. They think that um, being a Christian is all about work. Don't get me wrong, we are saved to serve. But there are people who, they, they're leaning on their own works righteousness instead of leaning on the grace of God. And they've always got something to say about others 
who are not quite doing what they ought to be doing. In chapter 19 and verse 29, Jesus spoke to his apostles, who unlike the rich young ruler, really had forsaken all to follow him. And he said to them, everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, shall receive a hundredfold. When you look at that in verse 29, you might think that Jesus was talking about rewards in heaven. You forsake all in this world, you're going to receive a hundredfold in heaven. Is that what you would think, maybe? Yeah? However... In Luke chapter 18 and verse 30, Jesus said much the same thing also. But in Luke 18 verse 30, he said that they would receive manifold, not hundredfold, but manifold in the present time. That's now. Jesus was talking about now in Matthew 19 verse 29, receiving a hundredfold now. In this lifetime, when you forsake all to follow Jesus. Does that make sense to you? And it doesn't really matter what um, it is. Even martyrdom, that's a hundredfold. When you think about it, the temporal blessings, the blessings for now, for all professing Christians, I say professing Christians because I'm including everyone in this, those who are truly born again and those who aren't born again. The temporal blessings for all who are involved in the life of a church fellowship are manifold or a hundredfold. And I'm talking about blessings even for those who are relying on their own works righteousness instead of the grace of God. There are blessings in the visible churches for all. Churches like this for all, such as being shielded from the ungodly and harmful attractions of the world, being amongst people who by and large have a moral compass and they have integrity. People that by and large you can rely upon. And in the churches, they all receive Bible teaching on subjects which are beneficial to all. The only downside is the the persecution, Um, but the unbelieving and the faint-hearted Christians, they will always devise all possible strategies to avoid the persecution. But as, as, as I've already said, in reality, persecution, for Christ's sake, is at the top of the list of the manifold blessings. That really is a privilege and a joy to be persecuted for Christ's sake. And you get all of that just from being part of the church family. You can think of all those blessings in the present time as the penny or the denarius. It's the portion of everyone in the church. But it doesn't end there. And that is because those who really have forsaken all for Christ's sake, or at least they have in their hearts, if not literally, and they joyfully labour in God's vineyard, trusting in his grace and his mercy and not their own works righteousness, they shall inherit uh, everlasting life. 
as we see at the end of verse 29. That, of course, goes way beyond the penny or the denarius that is given to everyone who labours in the church at this present time. Do you see what I'm saying here? It doesn't matter who you are. If you belong to a church, whether you really are leaning upon the grace of God or not, you'll get your denarius, you'll get your penny of blessings, manifold blessings, hundredfold blessings. But the blessings that extend into everlasting life, that inheritance goes way beyond the denarius or the penny. Finally, you'll see that chapter 19 ends pretty much the same way as the parable does in chapter 20, verse 16. As I say, let's have a look at it. Verse 30 in chapter 19. But many there are first shall be last. And the last shall be first. Okay. And then verse 16 in the next chapter. So the last shall be first and the first last. It's the same, isn't it? Pretty much the same. What does it actually mean? Luke's Gospel gives further insight into what that actually means. Uh, I'm going to keep my finger in Matthew 20, but it's worth looking at Luke chapter 13. It's quite helpful to, it helps us to understand what that means. The last being first and the first last. Luke 13. Looking at it in context in Luke. If I can find it. Okay. Well, I'll read it anyway. Luke chapter 13, verse 24 to 30. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able when once the master of the house is risen up and have shut to the door and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. This is people who say, Lord, Lord, as if they're they're so close close to Jesus and he's saying I don't know you verse 26 then shall ye begin to say we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets but he shall say I tell you I know you not whence you are depart from me all ye workers of iniquity there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. There you have it again in verse 30. That last shall be first. First shall be last. Let's have a look at it in the context of uh, Luke there. It will help us, I believe, with what we're looking at tonight in Matthew chapter 20. When it comes down to it, the first and the last 
refer to heaven and to hell. The obvious candidate in the eyes of the world for eternal life, such as people like the self-righteous rich young ruler or the industrious vineyard labourers who knew nothing of God's saving grace in their lives, but they nevertheless did a full shift, they will at last be told by Jesus, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. They are the last. Whilst those who have forsaken all and have leaned upon the grace of God, having trusted in Jesus as their saviour from sin, and they're trusting in Jesus as their Lord, they shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Most of all, they shall see their great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. The parable of the vineyard workers is ultimately about election. That's very clear in the last part of the last verse. I'm back in Matthew 20. I've left the last part of the parable until last. Look at it. Verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last, for many be called, but few are chosen. Therefore, The parable is about God calling people with a call that reaches far and wide. And indeed, there is a mixed multitude within the visible churches. There are the rich young rulers. There are those who are working their socks off um, and depending upon their own works righteousness instead of leaning upon the grace of God. But ultimately, only those who have forsaken all and who gladly receive God's grace, having repented of their sins, having trusted in Jesus, they are the ones who shall inherit everlasting life. They are the chosen ones. And I end with one simple question. Is that you? Are you a chosen one? Are you depending upon your own endeavours or are you trusting in God and his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has secured everlasting life for all who trust in him by his sinless life and his death at the cross and not forgetting his resurrection from the dead. Amen.